So I'm Pastor Michael, and uh, today we're going to preach, I'm going to preach on the resurrection. Not just the resurrection of, excuse me, not just on the resurrection of Jesus, because remember, his resurrection is the first fruits of the resurrection that will happen to all of God's people at the end of history. And, you know, for most Christians, we're not quite sure what to do with that, so that it becomes a kind of strange appendage to the story, a kind of happy ending, um, but otherwise it's a sort of afterthought. But when you read the Bible, you realize how central it is to the gospel and central it is to our salvation. So, for example, consider a verse like Romans chapter 6, verse 5. For if we have been united with Christ in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with Christ in a resurrection like his. And, you know, for most Christians, we know what the first part means. To be united to Christ in his death means to receive the forgiveness of sins, to be reconciled with God. This is the work of atonement. But what does the second part mean? What does it mean to be united to Christ in his resurrection? And so for the answer, we're going to look at the passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It's a very famous passage. Um, it's, it's the ex- most extended chapter on the resurrection. But um, it's a very difficult passage. And I'm going to walk us through this passage, and we're going to try to follow the logic of Paul's thought here. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to read the whole passage, and then I'm going to um, lead us verse by verse. So... This is um, going to display it in the screen, but also um, in your bulletins. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, I'll read to you starting from verse 35, and we'll read down to verse 49. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the body... But the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust, the second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also 
are those who are of the dust, and as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. This is the word of God. I'm going to adjust my stand and move it a little forward so I can see you guys a little bit better. Let me know if uh, that disturbs the screen. Um, So, that's a difficult passage. And um, here's the thesis. Paul's point is that the resurrection is a radical transformation into the image of Christ. The radical transformation into the image of Christ. And so there are two parts. Um, The radical transformation leads us through verse 41 And then into the image of Christ will take us through verse 49. So that's the outline, two points. And so let's begin. We'll start at the beginning, verse 35. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? And I don't know if if I have conveyed it by my tone, but this was not a question in good faith. This is a... Um, mocking question. It's a, it's a sneering question full of skepticism, which is why Paul responds in verse 36, you foolish person. And actually the translation, um, mutes it, softens it a little bit, because in the original Greek, it's actually a single word. It's a single word, which, um, I sort of imagine it, uh, the way Gandalf would say it, right? So Paul responds, fool, fool. Because in the ancient Greek world, when Paul said, the dead will rise, let me just wait for the bus to pass. When Paul said, the dead will rise, people were thinking, okay, so these are corpses reanimated. You know, this is um, resuscitated dead bodies where you have body parts all stitched together, sort of like Frankenstein, which was a ghastly idea. You know, why would you ever want something like that? And Paul responds, you completely misunderstand. Because the resurrection is not a return to our old bodies, not even um, a return to our bodies in their pristine health, because we are not going back to the way things were. But the resurrection is a radical transformation beyond anything we could imagine. And Paul gives us a series of... I'm waiting for the the plane. And so Paul gives us a series of analogies to help us to understand this paradigm. And so let's begin, verse 36, the first one. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, 
perhaps of wheat or of some other grain, but God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. So the first analogy comes from the world of gardening. And Paul notices that the body of a seed is completely different than the body of a plant. So that you could have never guessed holding a seed what would eventually emerge because the transformation is not in parts or in increments, but it is a stupendous change. Because a seed is tiny, it's lifeless and inert, whereas a plant, a full-grown plant, is resplendent with life and color and, and covered in leaves. And that's the difference Paul is talking about. That's the difference. And when you contemplate the difference between a seed and a mature plant, you begin to understand the scale of the transformation that is the resurrection so that we have no idea what awaits us. Our present reality is so small and it's so limited. Imagine a bag of seeds and in the bag... um, The seeds are living out their life. And the seeds imagine that this is the sum total of their reality. And then one day, one terrible traumatic day, a hand reaches in and begins to scatter the seeds, burying them into the ground so that it is a kind of death. And the seeds are filled with terror and dread because their old life is coming to an end but they have no idea of the glory and the transformation that awaits them because the body of a seed the, the body of a seed the body the life of a seed is incomparably lesser and and smaller than the body and the life of a plant do you understand isn't this marvelous let's continue verse 39 For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. So Paul here, he's continuing to lay down the groundwork to understand the resurrection. And his point here is that not all bodies are the same, but each body is adapted to its environment. So fish have gills, humans have legs, and neither are suitable for life in the sky. And the principle Paul is making is that bodies always fit. They always match the world that they inhabit. And the point that he's setting up that he's going to make is that our present bodies are suitable. They fit, they match this fallen world but they are unfit, they are unsuitable for the glorious world to come. Let's continue to verse 40. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind 
and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. So Paul here, he's continuing to compare bodies in their different environments. And he's looking at the heavenly bodies, what we would call celestial bodies, right? These are objects in the sky. And he notices that they all possess different glories. And by glory here, he's thinking about, you know, different kinds of radiance. So that the sun is this blazing object in the sky. It has this blinding brightness, whereas the moon has this sort of shimmering, silvery glow. It's luminous and beautiful. And then the stars are these pinpoint specks of light twinkling in the night sky. And each of them are so different. Each has their own splendor and glory. And then Paul is thinking about the earthly bodies. And by earthly bodies, he's thinking about objects on the earth, you know, like animal bodies and plant bodies. And he notices that they are completely different than the celestial bodies. So that each body is suited to its environment. And so he's using these observations about nature to establish this principle. This is Paul's point. That this present mortal body is not the end of the story. But there is a transformation awaiting us. So that in Christianity, death is like walking through a dark tunnel. And on the other side, we will emerge into this beautiful ballroom that is breathtaking beyond our imagination. This is the hope of Christianity. And that leads me to verse 42, and this is the second point in the outline. We're going to look at what the resurrection actually is. Verse 42, So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. So Paul here, he gives us a series of words to describe the mortality of this life. And he uses really strong, dramatic language. He says the human body is perishable, which means um, given to decay and decomposition. He says the body has dishonor, you know, meaning shameful and disgraceful. He says it's, it has weakness. He's thinking about human frailty and sickness. I think this is a sober and realistic view of the human condition. You know, I'm, I'm 44 years old now. And uh, many of you know that I suffer um, chronic pain in my hips and in my buttocks which prevents me from uh, sitting down for long periods of time. And over the years, I have gone to see many doctors, so many doctors. And all of them have been kind and sympathetic, but they cannot help me. You know why? Because the body is fragile. The body is prone to injury and wearing down and breakdown. And let me tell you, even if you enjoy pristine, good health now, 
I want you to know that the ravages of old age will pull you down into sickness and infirmity and senility. Those of you with elderly parents know exactly what I'm talking about. I remember my memory when I was a child is that my father was impossibly strong and capable. I felt like there was nothing he could not do. But my father now, in his old age, he is a shadow of his former self. And it's painful to witness. You know why? Because human strength is ephemeral. It is fleeting. And then the final stages of death are terrible. I don't know if you have ever visited someone in the last stages of cancer. Um, As a pastor, I have done several of these visitations. Every time I do this, I am always shocked. I am always shocked at how frail they are. And I want you to know that death is not a gentle slipping into the night, peaceful and serene. But death is a ravaging beast that destroys. And it is full of horror and ugliness. It's not the way it was supposed to be because it is the wages of sin. This is what Romans 6.23 tells us. The wages of sin is death. And here I want to pivot to the moral dimension of the resurrection. Because when Paul says perishable, dishonor, weakness, these are not just descriptions of the physical, but these are moral categories. These are spiritual categories. And I, I want you to know that this is a difficult concept for us to understand as modern Western people. Because what we've inherited from the Greek world, from Greek philosophy, is this idea that the body and the soul, they are separate things. And, you know, for most American Christians, what they believe is that when you die, you go to heaven so that your, your soul sort of floats up into the clouds and you leave your body behind. And that's the end of the story. But when you read the Bible, the body and the soul go together. And you cannot redeem one without the other. I recently watched uh, Pixar's new movie, Soul. Have you you seen it? It's the um, story of a character named Joe Gardner. Joe Gardner is a struggling jazz musician and he is desperate to get his big break. And on the cusp of finally landing his dream gig, he gets into an accident and he dies. And he goes to the afterlife and he cannot accept his death. And so through all these misadventures, he somehow manages, he somehow manages to get his life back, his, he get, to get back to earth and into his body. But he gets his old life back with all of its problems, with all of its dysfunctions and emotional disorders. Because as you watch the movie, you realize 
Joe Gardner's life is a mess. He's living his life all wrong. He's obsessed with music, but he has de- he has neglected the more important matters of life, of love and relationships and connection. And watching the movie, I thought it was so interesting because the movie is not telling the story from a Christian perspective. I mean, it has a completely different view of the afterlife than in Christianity. But I think it's so interesting that what the movie is saying is that it's not enough to have a new body. We need a new soul. We need new souls. And so who is going to fix our souls? And that leads me to verse 44. Paul writes, let me wait for the plane again. In verse 44, Paul writes, It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. All right. What does this mean? This verse has been badly misunderstood. And I think partly because of the limitations of the English language. Because when most people hear natural versus spiritual, most people are thinking material versus immaterial. Right? Most people are thinking, you know, physical, tactile life, that's natural. And then spiritual is sort of, you know, this ethereal, you know, things that are of the mind and the heart. That's not what Paul is talking about. When Paul says natural, he's talking about human life that is apart from God. That is apart from the power of God. And when he says spiritual, he's talking about life that is in fellowship with God, that is full of the Holy Spirit. That's what the word spiritual literally means. It means of the Spirit, full of the Spirit. And so what does this tell us? Paul is saying that the resurrection is the work of the Spirit. It's what the Spirit does. And the Spirit, first of all, redeems our bodies. Because again, we are not whole without our bodies. We are embodied beings. We're not just souls, but we are bodies. I think that if this pandemic has taught us anything, it's that digital connections, you know, digital relationships, they are not adequate, right? So that digital church, digital school, digital family gatherings, while they were necessary to get us through this pandemic, they are not enough. They are not enough for human flourishing. We are not just an image on a screen, but we need to touch each other. I think what this pandemic has really taught me is that there's something so powerful when you're physically with someone. And so the Spirit redeems our bodies. And so listen to Romans 8.11. And let me tell you, Romans 8 is basically a parallel passage to 1 Corinthians 15, right? It's basically saying the same thing, but listen to Romans 8. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life, listen, 
to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So that's what the spirit does. He redeems our bodies. But secondly, the the, the spirit doesn't just give us physical life. He gives us spiritual life. And again, spiritual means fellowship with God. And when you read all the rest of Romans 8, that's basically the whole point. He's the spirit of sonship. So verse 16, by his spirit, we cry, Abba, Father, right? We're restored. The spirit brings us back into connection, back into a relationship, into the family of God. And so when you have that in mind, now we can read verse 44 again. When Paul says, it is raised a spiritual body, what is Paul talking about? What is this spiritual body? Here's the answer. I hope I haven't lost you. The answer is, Paul is talking about everything. Paul is talking about our bodies. He's talking about our souls. He's talking about reconciliation. He's talking about sonship. And now we can understand a verse like Romans 8.23. Remember, all of Romans 8, parallel to 1 Corinthians 15. But listen to this, okay? This is kind of mind-blowing. Paul writes, We who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly, listen, for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Did you hear it? When Paul talks about adoption as sons, when Paul talks about the redemption of our bodies. These are just different terms. He's just looking at it with from different angles at the same thing, which is the resurrection. The resurrection, do you understand, is the healing of our bodies, is the healing of our souls, is the healing of our relationships. It is the complete transformation of everything that we are, everything that is about us. But we still haven't gotten to the meat of it. Because what will we, what will we be transformed into? And so let's look at verse 45. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. All right, so this is a difficult verse. And the key, here's the key, Paul is continuing to compare the natural world, remember, the natural world means the fallen world, and he's comparing it to the resurrected world to come, where we will have different bodies, as different as an oak tree is from a seed. We will have a different relationship with God because we will have all the fullness of the Spirit. And Paul's point here is that we will bear a different image. We will be remade into a different likeness. This is a huge concept, okay? This deserves its own sermon, its own sermon series. But in the few minutes that I'm going to give it, Let me try to say it succinctly. Please listen. In this present life, we bear the image of Adam, our father, 
to use the language of Romans 5, we are under Adam. And as Adam is our head, we have inherited from him his rebellion, his sin. This is why our world is a mess. This is why we have so much violence and evil. Because we are all sons of Adam, daughters of Eve. But in the resurrection to come, through the power of the Holy Spirit, we will bear the image of a new Adam. In in Romans 5, he's called the second Adam. In 1 Corinthians 15, he's called the last Adam. And his glory, and when we say his glory, I'm talking about his body, his soul, his relationships, his glory will be our glory. Listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image. This is the image of Christ from one degree of glory to another. Do you understand how marvelous this is? What awaits us in the resurrection is the likeness of Jesus Christ. I get chills when I think about this because His moral beauty, His majestic righteousness His compassion and courage, His gentleness and His integrity, they will be ours. They will be who we are. They will will describe our nature. And I think this answers our deepest longing. Because let me tell you, this life is unlivable without the hope of transformation. In marriage, when a spouse loses hope of change, do you know what happens? Divorce. In life, when someone loses hope about the future, um, that the future will change, there's depression and sometimes even suicide. But the resurrection is the hope of change. And not just in the life to come. If that's all we had... If all we had was the hope of transformation in the world to come, that would be enough. That would be enough to sustain us through any difficulty and through any trial that would imbue us with joy and strength for our present sorrows. It would be the consolation that we need. But the Bible tells us not just in the life to come, but also in this life. Because the resurrection works backwards so that even now we feel its power. Paul in in Philippians 3.10 says the power of the resurrection is at work right now in our lives. So much more that could be said on this. But we are changing even now. But some of you are saying, what about that expression? The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. All right. So I think Paul here is speaking in in an abbreviated way and he's telling us that Christ gives us life. That's what it means to be life-giving. And he gives us life through his Spirit, through the Holy Spirit. Much more can be said, but let's move on. Verse 46. 
Paul writes, but it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. So really quick here, Paul is giving us redemptive history. He's giving us the sequence of salvation. It's the fall, and then it's redemption. He says the same thing earlier in the chapter in verse 22. Listen to this. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. That's the sequence, okay? The natural and then the spiritual. Let's go on. Verse 40. So much more to be said on that, but let's go on. Verse 47. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are all who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. At this point, I want you to realize Paul is saying the same thing over and over again. He's just using different language. He's like any good preacher. He's repeating himself, but with different metaphors, different language. And here he's contrasting heaven and earth. And he's thinking of heaven and earth not as different physical realms, you know, heaven above us, earth below, uh, which is the way he was using it in verse 40, but he's thinking of them as spiritual realms. So that heaven is life with God and earth is life that is alienated from God. And I love this imagery that Paul gives us for life on earth. He says, Adam was a man of dust. I love that because I hate dust. (laughs) I hate how it accumulates around the house. Um, I used to have a job. um, I used to work at a hospital, Mass General in Boston. And part of my job was to um, relocate computers. um, And I would have to set up workstations whenever someone switched cubicles. And let me tell you, if you don't know, computer dust is the most vile version of dust. I would just be covered in computer dust all day long. And do you know what dust is? Dust is tiny particles of decaying organic matter. You know, dead skin cells, particles of hair. It's so gross, right? And I know some of you are saying, Did you know dust is a vital part of the cycle of life and ecology, okay? But please hang, stay with the poetic imagery, okay? (laughs) Because in the Bible, dust represents decomposition and death. And we're all fighting this losing battle against dust, right? We're always, we're constantly trying to clean dust. And get rid of dust. But in the end, we will all become dust. This is the futility of this life. But in Christ, we have eternal life. And I want to close by, what does that mean? I want to close by looking at our final verse. Verse 49. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. So that word bear that Paul uses twice is the Greek word forero. Forero means to put on, to wear as in clothing. 
it's a curious metaphor that Paul evokes, right? This image, I mean, uh, this this uh, metaphor of putting on the image of Christ like putting on clothing. What does that mean? Nancy Guthrie, in her book, Even Better Than Eden, I've cited her book numerous times. I love this book. Uh, I highly recommend it. She has a chapter in the book on this biblical theme, this motif of clothing and nakedness. It's really interesting. And she notes that Adam and Eve, if you look at the creation account, Adam and Eve, they were created naked in the garden. But she argues that their nakedness was never intended to be their final status. But they were always meant to be clothed eventually in garments of righteousness. And she points to um, the book of Revelation, right? Because when you have this scene of the new heavens and the new earth, we're not, the saints are not all gathered together naked, <laughs> right? As we were in the garden, but we're all clothed in beautiful, shimmering white robes. But what happens in the story, right, in Genesis, is that Adam and Eve rebelled against God. And then they discovered that they were naked. And what they did was they sewed together fig leaves to try to cover their shame. But it doesn't work. And you can tell the whole story of mankind as this longing, this search to be clothed. When you go back to our passage in verse 37, you know what Paul says? He says the seed is a bare kernel. In the Greek, it literally says a naked seed, which is a really interesting way to put it, that the seed is naked. And what he's telling us is that in our natural bodies, in our bodies of the earth, of the dust, we are naked. Do you understand? Who will clothe us? I want to read to you, in closing, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians 5 brings all the different pieces that I've been talking about and pulls them together. And when you read 2 Corinthians 5 by itself, it's a really challenging passage, difficult to understand. But when you read it with 1 Corinthians 15, when you read it with Romans chapter 8, it all comes into clarity. And as I read it to you, I I want you to know that Paul introduces another metaphor of a building. And then, in fact, he combines this metaphor of a building with the metaphor of clothing. Okay, so so listen to this, okay? 2 Corinthians 5, I'm going to read verses 1 through 5. Listen to this passage. For we know that... If the tent, which is our earthly home, is destroyed. When Paul is talking about a tent, he's talking about our natural earthly bodies. Do you understand? Okay, so let me read it to you again. For we know that if the tent, which is our earthly home, is destroyed, he's talking about death, we have a building. He's talking about the resurrected body. We have a building from God a house 
not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on, that's the language of clothing, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. This is eternal life, the life of Christ. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, as a guarantee. I wish I had the time to just revel and unpack this passage. Because what Paul is saying is that in the resurrection, we will put on the image of Christ like we're putting on a robe. Like we're moving into a building after living our whole lives in tents. And then we will finally, finally be able to take off the image of Adam. This image of corruption and rebellion and death. And we will be clothed with the righteousness of Christ. This is the gospel. This is the hope of mankind. This is the greatest truth. I can think of no greater truth upon which we must center our lives. Join with me in prayer. Almighty God, with our feeble minds, we're trying to penetrate into the deep things of God. We are like a little child swimming in the ocean. The vastness and depths which are beyond our imagination. This resurrected life full of glory and beauty in your presence, in your love that will last forever, world without end will be ours. Even now, we possess the first fruits of it through the Holy Spirit. What a marvelous truth this is. What inexpressible joy and hope and strength. And in Christ's name we pray. Amen.